Archaeology is the search for fact, not truth. So forget any ideas you've got about lost cities, exotic travel, and digging up the world. We do not follow maps to buried treasure, and X never, ever marks the spot. Can you dig it? Can you dig it? Can you dig it? Nothing shocks me. You are listening to Think Theory Radio. 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 Hello and welcome to Think Theory Radio, the show that brings you topics outside the mainstream realm of thought and ideas to make you think. And I'm your host, Damien Perdue. And I'm, of course, I'm joined by Polly C. Yo, yo, yo. And today the C stands for sarcophagus. Is that start with? I thought that was an S. <laughs> no. Is it C? It's a C. I can't spell sarcophagus. <laughs> spell sarcophagus for 10 points, Paul. Yeah. Ding. S A. I would have been buzzed Although right it away. Be, I, I thought it was C, though. I don't, I have no idea. Now I'm looking it up. Yeah, as we, uh, <laughs> I was, <laughs> um, I was already too. Okay, you're right. It's a, S. It is S. Okay. Messed up my whole intro. Oh, it's Can we right. restart? Well, then the C stands for ancient carvings. There you go. Um, or caves. Because today is physical science, do yeah. you? <laughs> and tales to or awesome archaeology. Awesome archaeology. Geology, geology, geology. And mysteries of the past. There you go. Yeah. I think I might stick with that one. <laughs> yeah, we need some mysterious sounds. Let's just play like mysterious sounds in the background while we talk. I'm going to look for the soundtrack to the video game Mist. I also apologize to my English teachers that I didn't know how sarcophagus was spelled. Oh, like they would know. <laughs> That's like your uh, ancient civilizations teacher would right. be the one that would know that. <laughs> I think, though, in some language it's spelled with a C. That's what I'm going with. In like ancient Greek or something. Right? Sure. <laughs> Speaking of ancient Greek... Actually, I have uh, I found some pretty cool. It's been a while since we've done this uh, episode, the awesome archaeology, and there's been numerous discoveries in the world. I have amulets, amulets, and more amulets, and theories that possibly humans were. There we go. Ooh, I'm telling you, man, the video game Mist from the '90s. Oh yeah, yeah. We can play some Tomb Raider or something. Yeah, there you go. Like original Tomb Raider. Yeah. Um, Pull out all the 90s. Those before uh, Hunger Games. Yeah. All of the 90s uh, PC hits. You know, we'll do like, um, was it Doom and uh, Wolfenstein 3D? Or take it back to the 80s, do Pitfall. Oh, there you go. Okay. Was that the... No, that was E.T. I was thinking of the Atari game, the E.T. Oh, the worst game ever made. (laughs) (laughs) You just, like, you'd fall into a hole and that was it. Like... Pitfall was fun. It was it was like an Indiana Jones type game, but it was a side scroller, like okay. an old like okay. two bit one. Um, it was really hard. It's like you had to jump and grab vines and swing over pits and stuff, and watch out for the mummies. Man, if we gone on tangents in the first few minutes of this show, <laughs> but it's all relative. You know, mm-hmm. Pitfall was it's a it's an archaeological game, mm-hmm. kind of not really. <laughs> <laughs> I guess like discovering well, it ancient, is ancient yeah. history because yeah. it's a very old game. It's an anthropological yeah. uh, type of. We'll have to do like game. ancient history of video games. That'd be episode. cool. Well, haven't we talked about the ET, the the land, yes. the, yeah, the landmine and the desert of, mm-hmm. uh, or not landmine, the landfill, I should say, of ET. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's pretty funny. <laughs> See, someone's gonna find that in mm-hmm. a thousand years. <laughs> what is this? Ancient aliens. It must have been so important. There's so many of them. <laughs> Maybe this is where they, they uh, cultivate them. Yeah. Where they grow them. You throw some they video grow- game <laughs> seeds and the cartridges grow and then you distribute them. And they're That's also how Atari did it. Popular. Mm. All right. Well, this wasn't uh, extraterrestrials, but it is ancient. And it is a questionable theory that could push back the timeline of technological innovation 
and that is, were hominins sailing the Mediterranean half a million years ago? Okay. 500,000 years ago, which would be way before we assume that humans could even sail or make any kind of boat or raft. I, I would imagine with the amount of different cultures there are around the Mediterranean that there had to have been movement long before the known movement. Mm-hmm. Like we, right now, the, the belief is that sapiens, Homo sapiens were the only member of the uh, Homo family to have the ability to sail the oceans. Mm-hmm. That was humans reaching Australia about 50,000 years ago. Wow. So this would be 10 times that amount of time. And this is actually earlier hominins, so this was before Homo sapiens um, that would have did this. And the theory comes from how Mediterranean islands and like the Aegean islands and Crete and all of them uh, became populated with ancient humanoids. Your your Maltas and your Sicilies Mm -hmm. and your... Mykonos. Where's that? Santorini. I don't practice Santorini. No? No. (laughs) Mediterranean. I mean, like, uh, what, the first one you said, that sounds like that was Greek. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Greek, Greek. It's all right there. They're all right around there. Italy, Malta. Um, Oh, they didn't go to any of the Spanish islands? uh, Maybe. I don't know. Well, but I haven't seen that any evidence there but i'm sure they were there but this was uh they have found in crete they have found thousands of flint tools dated to more than one hundred thirty thousand years ago and possibly as old as seven hundred thousand years right so it's like how did they get to these islands and there's been all kinds of theories that possibly well maybe the sea level was low because of the extreme ice age event that they could just walk across it. But this new study that was published in November in the journal Quaternary International by a team of Greek researchers from the Oceanus Lab, the Sea Lab of University of Patras. Sea <laughs> Lab 2021? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, they, the researchers reconstructed the shoreline of the Aegean Islands and surrounding mainland, mainland over the last 450,000 years and they did this by combining data from ancient river deltas, which reveal changes in sea levels. And during the last half a million years, there were five major glacial events and five warmer periods. But even with all of that, there was still an island. So there was still water that had to be crossed. And I guess the key is that throughout this period, the closest islands always remain visible from the mainland, providing a tantalizing incentive for these. Ir- See, I like this music. I just I think we should do this for every episode. Now. <laughs> I just feel like Mist is going to sue us eventually. <laughs> Maybe because we're talking over it, like it it cancels out. Yeah, the, uh... no, that's what I've been trying to like kind of tastefully put it in the background here and there, you know, without drawing too much attention to it. You know, Mist, the video game spelled with a Y from the nineties. <laughs> Uh, I just don't want them to sue WCPT 820. (laughs) And they believe that it doesn't necessarily mean that they invented a boat so that they could have uh, island hopped using primitive rafts or by clinging to a tree log. These are the speculations. So we don't really know. We know that they got over there to these islands over the water Hundreds of thousands of years ago, and we still don't really know how. Unless they were just, like, amazing swimmers. I was going to say, there's, there's got to be that guy. Yeah. You know? I'm, I'm swimming to that I'm island, swimming, man. man. I'm going to just keep, keep swimming, and I'm going to get to the other side and see what's there. And then, like, along the way, like, oh, I think I found Italy. And it's like, nah, man, this is Crete. <laughs> <laughs> but then somebody would have to follow them. Yeah, Because sure. enough yeah. people would have to go over yeah. there, and they would have to, like, Because they were the first, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Um, so, but what the thing is, is the, the important part of it would mean that these early hominins had advanced cognitive capabilities, more so than we thought that they would have had in order to cross over and colonize these islands and just have the, the mindset to even want to do it, 
right, to, mm-hmm. to look out and see these islands and say, hey, I want to get over there. Life finds a way. Mm-hmm. Exactly. That's true. We talked about that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so there's, you know, so that's uh, interesting development. We will see where that goes and follow the story. <laughs> We're going to be on top of it. We've got people on <laughs> it. Find an ancient boat. 24-7 shifts just to solve the problem. Mm-hmm. Investigate. <laughs> Our archaeological team. <laughs> um, but I do have uh, some interesting, another, I don't know if I would keep to the, I like these stories, though, that kind of push back the timeline of humanity and whatever, stuff like that. What do you mean by pushback? Like, well, uh, like this one, like we never thought that people were. Yeah. So it's like, oh, even older, even, even longer ago than we thought. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Or like all the stuff that's been found in Turkey that has pushed back the timeline of when we were building Magalets. Mm-hmm. Um, they did find a pretty cool ancient Egyptian amulet. Speaking of Turkey, uh, a unique ancient Egyptian amulet seal discovered during archaeological excavations in northern Turkey. And it's pretty cool looking. It's, it looks like a black obsidian mini pyramid. And it's a pyramidal stamp seal amulet. Um, it's it's small. It's like a two centimeters. Uh, the amulet features various markings, such as a right hand holding a sword, two wings, and letter characters. She believes the uh, the associate professor Fatma Cam, head of archaeology department of the Faculty of Literature at Barton University, told reporters that the amulet is the first unique artifact found in a Roman structure built from marble dating back to the second century A.D. and she says, we see that there is a figure depicting the god Bess, whom we know from the Egyptian religion, depicted with incised lines at the base of the work. On the upper part of the work, we see that there are letter characters and talismanic words from the ancient Egyptian religion called Demotic. The letter characters on the work probably represent this meaning of protection as a kind of talismanic object. We can define it as an object that a person wears to be protected from evil and diseases or in whatever sense he wants to be protected. We could say that this is the only example of its kind found from the Roman layer in the Anatolia during excavations. Cam stated that the discovery of the artifact is an important and exciting development for archaeologists. We will investigate what the seal means and whether the person wearing it is a priest a religious official, or whether someone carries it for health and safety purposes, perhaps we will find out whether a soldier in the Legion brought it there after his mission in the East, she says. Amsra's coast was host to the Phoenician colony Sesamus in the 12th century BC. The colony's heyday was during the rule of Iranian princess Amastris. It's a cool-looking little amulet, though. I want it. I want it for my private collection. But I, I like this. Um, I have a couple different stories like that, too, of these kind of cross-pollinations of cultures. And it really interests me when you hear about these stories of here's an Egyptian amulet found in a Roman structure in ancient Turkey. Right? And I, th- I feel like what well, part of it is because we're so separated in time you know, from antiquity that I think we in our brains like to kind of compartmentalize and file each kind of epic or culture as its own separate entity. And I, I don't I don't think we totally comprehend how much integration and diversity there was in the ancient world and how much, you know, people went and visited other lands and brought back amulets and gems and jewelry from other places. Um, like they've talked, you know, they found ancient Egyptian jewelry in Norway with the Vikings and stuff like that. So I just find that kind of interesting. I do have another amulet story and somewhat of a cross culture thing. Not, not as big as that, that one, but this one's kind of cool. It's uh, Thor's hammer amulet. Found in Sweden. And uh, ahead of a construction of a housing development at a site in southwestern Sweden, archaeologists unearthed a metal amulet in the shape of Thor's hammer. Mjolnir. Right? Is that how you say it? 
I have no idea. Thor fan? Yeah. I'm, no, I have <laughs> no idea. Uh, dating to the period between the 9th and 11th centuries AD, the amulet is the first of its kind to be found in this, relig- in this region. It was decorated with embossed designs and may have originally been covered in gold or silver. A hole through the hammer's handle would have enabled the amulet to be strung and worn as jewelry. According to archaeologist Per Ranning of the Holland Museum of Cultural History, people might have worn objects like this to signal their religious leanings at the end of the Viking Age when Christianity began to supplant worship of the old Norse gods in Scandinavia. Researchers have also excavated fire pits, post holes, pottery, and other metal items at the site. But it's pretty cool looking. I'd wear it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> little... It's a little mini hammer, little Thor's hammer. Yeah. But I, I just think about that as like, you know, you go back in times of ninth or eleventh century AD, right? And somebody's rocking this like Thor's hammer. Yeah. Walking around town in Sweden, like, yeah, what's up, Thor's hammer? <laughs> around the time <laughs> that you know there's. About this? What was this around the same era as uh, what, like Perseus or uh, Omni Perseus or the? Is it like <laughs> oh, the, yeah, better than uh, right. yeah, <laughs> Paracelsus? Yeah, Paris, yeah, yeah, Celsus and Paracelsus. Right. Yeah, it's like well, you got Thor's hammer, man. <laughs> Especially if it was gold or silver, it's just like they're walking around town. Like, what's up? It just feels like someone with a name like that would have you mm-hmm. know, like the. Not only am I better than you, I've got the amulet. Right. I've got the Thor's hammer. Mm-hmm. I got Thor's hammer around my neck. I got this Egyptian amulet in my pocket. <laughs> Just walking around, fully protected by the gods. <laughs> but I just think about that, like, as far as um, kind of a cultural thing, you know, fashion, but also were the people wearing it, was the person wearing it, like, that enamored with it? Like, you know, there's a lot of people that wear crosses and stuff, but they're not really, like, super Christian or religious, just kind of like a tradition, you know? It, it feels like something that was probably, like, made for, like, a, a princess that, like, was trying to be, be wooed or something. Mm. I don't know. You know? Maybe. It, something that wars would be started over. Right. You know? <laughs> She's got those hammer. <laughs> But, you know, but I mean, like, did she believe or wh- whoever was wearing this, did they believe that Thor was a real god or was it just kind of like, yeah, yeah, this is just kind of a mystical representation. This is just kind of tradition. Yeah, my grandmother wore this. Now I wear it, you know, kind of thing. I, don't know, I just wonder about stuff like that. Like I don't really how like, much we parallel. I don't really like Marilyn Manson. I just dress in all black because <laughs> it looks cool. Yeah. Or like, well, like all the kids wearing like Led Zeppelin shirts. Do they really yeah, listen? Yeah. To Led right, Zeppelin? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'd find it hard to believe that all these 12-year-olds are into Kate Bush. Right. (laughs) Damn you, Stranger Things. (laughs) Um, Now, this one's like, this is pretty interesting. I think I'll fit this in before the break. Because you know how now, like, like with the war in Ukraine, you can get, like, messages written on a on a missile if you want i didn't know that yeah you can pay this like patriots for ukraine (laughs) and you can get like murder 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 written on the missile what's the purpose of that is it the last thing yeah i don't know i don't like uh like like what uh big boy and little boy yeah 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 and but it's it's psychological warfare though right Okay. Because, like, if they find the, you know, the casing of it and they see the missile, you know, written on it. So this has been done for a while in war. you, you United Statesians. Yeah. (laughs) But they were doing this in World War II. They were doing, like, you know, they'd write messages on it. It's like psychological Mm -hmm. warfare. Well, this goes back, way back. They have found a 2,200-year-old Greek victory sling bullet. And it was discovered in Israel. And it was uh, these lead bullets that the Greeks would, like, use a slingshot and sling them at people. Yeah. Early projectiles. But this bullet has an inscription on it that says, Victory of Hercules and Hieronymus. And I guess, well, which doesn't sound all that intimidating to me, but maybe in the past that was something like, oh, my God. You know, if they found that lodged in somebody's body, it was like, all right, we know that what that's about. Um, it was found in uh, the Israeli city of Yavne, and the interesting thing is that um, the pair of gods Haran was Egyptian, and then Her- Hercules or, or Heracles 
obviously was Greek, and uh, Horanus or Haran was an ancient Egyptian god worshipped in Giza. And it's a... Uh, Archaeologist says, uh, actually, the inscription of a, on a sling bullet is the first archaeological evidence of the two guardians of Yavne discovered inside Yavne itself, Ustinova said. Until today, the pair was only known from an inscription on the Greek island of Delos. Nikki, which means victory, is the inscription on the other side of the sling bullet. So one side said victory, the other side said, don't mess with Horanus or Hercules. <laughs> Uh, lead sling bullets are known in the ancient world beginning in the 5th century BCE, but in Israel, very few individual sling bullets were found with inscriptions. The inscriptions convey a message of unifying the warriors with the aim of raising their spirits, scaring the enemy, or a call intended to magically energize the sling bullet itself, she said. And uh, However, there's no way of knowing whether or not the projectile actually belonged to a Greek soldier According to Pablo Betzer, uh, authorities at the Israel Antiquities. According to them, there's a chance that it was used during a conflict between the Greeks and the Hasmoneans. In the second century BCE, pagan Yavne, which was an ally of Seleucus, uh, Seleuc Seleucids, the Greek who ruled Eretz Israel, were subject to attacks by the Hasmonean armies. The tiny lead sling bullets announcing the imminent victory of the god, gods of pagan Yavne are tangible evidence of a fierce battle that took place in Yavne at that time, they say. So it's interesting that this is an, an age-old technique of psychological warfare. <laughs> uh, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we have the oldest DNA found on Earth and much more on Think Theory Radio. back to Think Theory Radio. Today it is awesome archaeology and mysteries of the past. past, past, past. <laughs> and I do have a, a pretty cool mystery that I'm going to get to. But before that, I have, what about the oldest uh, pornographic carving? <laughs> Or may, well, maybe a carving, probably not the oldest uh, depiction, but I'm not going to get to that yet. I will get to that. <laughs> <Aww>. <laughs> um, real quick, there is the one I, I talked about right before the break. Yeah. I wasn't sure if this was it. I see what you're talking about, those side scroller. This is mm -hmm. old school. Like, oh, yeah. This is Pitfall, too. Ooh, look how they slowed it down right there. Let me make a... <laughs> I love it, yeah. freestyling about pitfall. Life's ups and downs and pitfalls. <laughs> Wait, you're about to freestyle the pitfall? I was, but I'm glad you turned it off, because I don't know where that was going to go. We might have got taken off the air. <laughs> <laughs> um, but down in this one pitfall, no, not really. They unlocked the oldest known DNA revealed in lo a lost Greenland from two million years ago. And uh, I got this from PBS. Scientists discovered the oldest known DNA, and it is used to reveal what was life was like two million years ago in the northern tip of Greenland. Today, it's a barren Arctic desert. But back then, it was a lush landscape of trees and vegetation with an array of animals, even now the extinct mastodon. Because um, with animal fossils hard to come by, the researchers extracted environmental DNA, also known as eDNA, from soil samples. This is a genetic material that organisms shed into their surroundings. Studying really, really old DNA can be a challenge because of the genetic material breaks down. But with the latest technology, researchers were able to get genetic information out of the small damaged bits of DNA. 
explains senior author S.K. Willerslev, a geneticist at the University of Cambridge. The samples came from a sediment deposit called the Cap Copenhagen Formation in Puriland. Today it's a polar desert. Uh, the DNA also the DNA fragments suggest a mix of Arctic plants like birch trees and willow shrubs with ones that usually prefer warmer climates like firs and cedars. The DNA also show traces of animals including geese, hares, reindeer, and lemmings. Previously, a dung beetle and some hair remains had been the only signs of animal life at the site. One big surprise was finding DNA from the mastodon, an extinct species that looked like a mix between an elephant and a mammoth. Early humans used fire to permanently change the landscape. Hmm. I wouldn't have in a million years, ha ha ha, expected to find mastodons in northern Greenland, says Love Dallin, a researcher in evolutionary genomics at Stockholm University who was involved in the study. Uh, Wurzerslev believes that because these plants and animals survived during a time of dramatic climate change, their DNA could offer a genetic roadmap to help us adapt to current global warming. Hmm. Stockholm University's Dalen expects ancient DNA research to keep pushing deeper into the past. He works on the study that previously held the oldest DNA record from a mammoth tooth around one million years old. I wouldn't be surprised if you can go at least one or perhaps a few million years further back, assuming you can find the right samples, Dalen said. So that's pretty interesting. Two million year old DNA. Yeah. And all right. So I tease the uh, ancient uh, porn. <laughs> uh, I got this from Science Alert. Ancient carving of man gripping penis has been found. <laughs> <laughs> that was hidden for 11,000 years. This 11,000-year-old carving discovered in Turkey. See, Turkey's, look, right? It's like, everything's popping up in Turkey, man. Everything's well, turning up Turkey. We, I swear we've talked about this before, like well, how much of a land bridge mm -hmm, Turkey is. For sure. You know? So I think it's just, you know, it's like uh, where the elite meet to uh, change continents. Yeah. It's kind of like becoming the new um, Fertile Crescent in a way. Yeah. Like, you know, later, but... Similar, with a lot of new found remnants. Uh, yeah, so, so they, it has a strong claim to be the oldest narrative scene that we have found yet. Uh, the carving depicts two separate scenes on adjacent stone blocks suggesting a progressive story, which is the narrative of it. They both have the same theme, humans threatened by dangerous animals. We have a male human holding his phallus while leopards approach, teeth bared on either side. On the other panel, a squatting male human is holding a rattle or a snake facing off against a bull with a large horn. That the teeth and horns of the animals are emphasized highlights the level of danger in the scene, says Ilum Ozdogan, uh, archaeologist from Istanbul University in Turkey, and author of the new paper describing the carvings. However, it's not clear precisely what the story these carvings are trying to tell. Uh, they say, use your imagination. <laughs> these figures engraved together to depict a narrative are the first known examples of such a holistic scene, says Ozdagen. This was a picture of the stories that formed the ideology of the people of that period. Um, the building has all of the characteristic features of the communal structures in the region. In this structure, as in similar ones, animal and human images were found. However, here the characteristic figures of the period coexist and form a scene. Uh, when it comes to narrative scenes, that's, of course, open to interpretation. The oldest artwork found to date is the 44,000-year-old paintings of pigs and animals found on the island of Sula Sulawesi, although it doesn't have multiple panels like the Cyberk site carving. The oldest example of drawing we've come across is 73,000 years old, I believe, in Indonesia. There's also ones in the caves in France. But I believe this is the oldest relief, actually carved depiction of a kind of narrative scene. But I find it, <laughs> I find it kind of funny that this, whatever, whoever this figure is, and uh, it actually, it look, if you look up the picture of it, the figure, the human figure, looks kind of like... A uh, 
I hate to say it, but it looks like some kind of Star Trek alien. Because <laughs> it has like the it has like this weird brow that goes into the ears, and then the ears kind of stick out, like almost like elf kind of ears. Okay, so it looks almost kind of like Vulcan or something. But then it's I just find it funny that it's uh, this person, this male human, is holding its phallus while leopards are like. Atta- like look like they're attacking. So it's like the guy's like gripping his junk. Like nope, gotta protect, gotta protect the jewels. <laughs> Even back then, they knew the importance. Uh, but I just thought that was pretty funny, especially the uh, the headline of it. And I have a couple. There's uh, another interesting kind of tie-in to. You know, I always like to kind of parallel how we live now to the past, you know, Mm -hmm. and like, how did people do what we do now? You know, like go to the restaurants, go to bars, blah, 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 you know, go sightseeing, go to games. Right. So, like, we know in ancient Rome, they had the Colosseums, you know, uh, bread and circuses had all kind of, you know, gladiator fights and all kind of games and circuses or whatever. Yeah. But what did the ancient Romans snack on while they watched these Epic battles. Hmm. <laughs> I'm going to guess some sort of like stale pastry. Hmm. Like a bread or cracker of some sort. Uh. Well, that is not what has been found so far. Okay. Well, <laughs> doesn't mean it didn't happen. Why didn't you tell us what the <laughs> the Romans snacked on? <laughs> and this was found in uh, a dig at the uh, ancient Colosseum there in Rome. And I guess at the spectators at Rome's ancient gladiator arena may have enjoyed snacks of figs, grapes, cherries, blackberries, walnuts, and olives. Archaeologists also found the bones of bears and big cats that were probably used in the arena's hunting games. <laughs> and uh, they say relics like this provide a snapshot into the experience and habits of those who came to this place during the long days dedicated to the performances, said Alpha Sina Russo, director of the Coliseum Archaeological Park. Researchers say bones from bears and lions were probably left by animals that were forced to fight each other and gladiators for entertainment. Smaller animal bones belonging to dogs were also found. Study began in January 2021 and involved the clearance of around 230 feet of drains and sewers under the Colosseum, which remains one of Italy's most visited landmarks. Specialist architects and archaeologists used wire-guided robots to navigate the arena's complex drainage system, aiding their understanding of daily life in Rome as well as in ancient hydraulic structures. Colosseum was the biggest amphitheater in Rome, uh, the Roman Empire, falling into disuse around 523 A.D. And uh, ancient coins were also discovered in the dig, including 50 bronze coins dating back to the late Roman period, spanning roughly uh, 250 to 450 A.D. And a silver commemorative coin from around 170 to 171, celebrating 10 years of Emperor Marcus Aurelius's rule. Which I was actually just reading an article about his uh, Marcus Aurelius's the meditations, okay. like journals that he wrote and they published later, and uh, it was about how he kind of he was a he was a night owl and he didn't like to get out of bed in the morning, and it was kind of I mean it's not the whole book is about it but it, there's parts of it where it's about how to get yourself out of bed in the morning. And it's kind of interesting coming from this ancient emperor who's considered one of the, the like what five great emperors because he was actually kind of actually did his job and cared about people supposedly. Yeah, but it's interesting because he wrote this kind of talking to himself, not really like expecting it to get published. I didn't mean to publish this, right? <laughs> Dear diary. Yeah. yeah, but he literally and it's but it, that's another part of what I was talking about, like the, the similarities of life between now and then. And he talks about how you know. He would have a hard time getting out of from under the covers in the morning, you know, and he'd have to push himself and say, hey, you know, was was this what I was born for to stay, you know, warm underneath these covers or do I get up and actually go out into the world and do something? Yeah. You know, so I just find that interesting. 
I have a hard time getting out of bed most days. So, <laughs> especially this time of year. <laughs> yeah, well, it's so cold and mm-hmm. your bed is so warm. Mm-hmm. Gray skies. Mm-hmm. Well, sticking to the Romans, the I got this from Big Think. Roman roads are still connecting Europe's wealthiest areas. And it says, at the height of its power, Rome's empire extended from Scotland to Iraq. Roman Rhodes is my soap opera name. Oh, I like it. <laughs> Roman Rhodes. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> that sounds like a wrestler name. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah, that was going to be my backup. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, they would like tie together the vast territory was a sophisticated road network about 50,000 miles long. And, of course, it was uh, typically a military supply route and then became open to the public. Um, A team from the University of Gothenburg has combined maps of the Roman road network with satellite imagery and using the intensity of nocturnal illumination as an indicator of economic activity has demonstrated a remarkable pattern of persistence between the old Roman roads and the modern corridors of economic activity. Given that much has happened since, much should have been adapted to modern circumstances, says Ola Olson, professor of economics at the School of Business at the University of Gothenburg. But it is striking that our main result is that the Roman roads have contributed to the concentration of cities and economic activity along them, even though they are gone and covered by new roads. Instead of reorienting its economy, medieval Europe eventually refurbished the Roman roads or retraced their routes with new ones. The reason was that even as the Roman roads disappeared, the urban landscape remained. So it made sense to restore the most obvious connections between the urban centers. But for some reason, it didn't stay that way in Africa or the Middle East. Says uh, Northern Africa and the Middle East, wheel transport was gradually replaced by camel caravans from the 4th to 6th centuries. So there was no need to fix up or replace the Roman roads in those areas. As a result, there is much less overlap in North Africa and the Middle East between Roman and modern zones of prosperity. Hmm. So interesting. Roman roads. All roads lead to Rome. (laughs) Uh, All right, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll talk about the mystery of Saksayuman in Peru. How was it built? Who built it? And why? On Think Theory Radio. Welcome back to Think Theory Radio, talking about things from long time ago. Archaeology, on demonology, spitness, ill-type radio, philosophy. Okay. Love it. That's it. That's it right there. <laughs> That's all you get, people. Not paying me for that. <laughs> My freestyles ain't free. Wasn't pre-planned. You understand it goes hand in hand Woo. with the show that <laughs> that you what? know. Think yes. Theory Radio. Ah, yeah. nice. Not bad for a all white right. boy that I plays like rock that. music. Mm. Yeah. I'm rubbing off on you, see? Yeah. I got a little hip-hop in me. Yeah, you know? yeah. You know some things. Mm-hmm. You've listened to some tunes. Mm-hmm. You've heard w- some rhymes. Wide palette, you know. <laughs> You've heard the rappings. <laughs> I'm down with the hibbity-hop. <laughs> um, I don't know how to segue from that into this, but... <laughs> <laughs> don't. <laughs> just, just go. <laughs> what is the mystery of Saksahuman? Yeah, what is it? <laughs> Now, for starters, what is it? <laughs> yeah. It's an Incan fort, right? Or we actually believe that it was built before the Incans. You're an Incan fort. Yeah, that's true. That no, just sounds like an insult. <laughs> you old Incan fort. <laughs> um, but this is one of those ancient structures that were built in a way that we still can't figure out exactly how they did it, right? Okay. Can't agree on how they did this, accomplished this amazing feat of engineering. Of course, there's always the alien theory. <laughs> the aliens. Can humans just couldn't have been advanced? Come on. Um, others think 
that it could have been done through a network of mirrors and lenses. Other theories just get weirder and weirder. But it's uh, the the style of stonework. It's called vitrified stonework. And I guess vitrification is essentially the process of transforming any substance into glass. Uh, it happens when the materials in question are heated to a point that they turn into liquid and then rapidly cooling that the liquid into a solid. So vitrified stonework is stonework that could only be achieved by superheating the rock and then rapidly cooling it to achieve the effect of the stones being melted together. So that's where you wouldn't use mortar. You kind of use this, this vitrification. And... Um, it wasn't impossible with the technologies ancient people had, but – and this has been – there's vitrified stonework in Scotland and England and Malta, Egypt and other areas around the world, Southeast Asia. And we know uh, in Scotland some of these forts that were built in this way were from like 700 to 300 BC. And this was – that was in the middle of the British Iron Age, so melting rocks. That was a thing they were doing at the time. Not out of the question, but those rocks were a lot smaller. The thing with at uh, Saxehuman or Saxehuman, it's a kind of hard word to pronounce, but uh, are massive. These things are huge. And an actual way that you would do this with stones is that you have to throw them into a furnace because they have to they have to superheat the rocks at 1100 degrees. Right. Okay. Now, but if you look at these huge Incan fort, uh, the stones that built it, I mean, they're massive. And I know I have it somewhere, the information. Of it. It's like 100 tons, I think, is what how much they weighed. But they're huge. I mean, if you look at pictures of them, a person standing next to it is like a fourth of the size of these stones. Okay. And they're not all perfectly structured but they're all perfectly pushed together there's like you can't even really fit like a piece of paper in between these stones <laughs> so the question is how did they vitrify these stones that are hundreds of feet tall and piled up together and they're like fit together as if they were almost like if you carved the side of a mountain to make it look like it was a bunch of stones put together and like even after thousands of years of weathering, they still shine like polished glass. And uh, so it's there's like so many different theories on how this could have happened. Even some have uh, postulated the theory that they were using some kind of radioactive paste. Like the ancients knew how to like create some kind of radioactive paste. But... There has been no evidence of radioactivity found. Okay. Right? So that doesn't seem to be. And they believe the earliest occupation of the settlement goes back to 900 AD. And that was a few hundred years before William the Conqueror would win the Battle of Hastings. The Inca had their own story about the creation of Sacsayhuaman. And it was built as the head of the metaphorical Lion of Cusco. The site had major religious significance. Um, but we still don't know how they did it. They believe that possibly the stone was cut and moved and then fused together because of a forest fire or some kind of intense battle. But no researchers have been able to prove this is possible on any test walls. They've tried, but they have failed. Uh Another crazy theory is that the Incas used a series of complex mirrors and lenses to harness the sun's rays to create enough heat to melt the stone, but that seems kind of just overcomplicated. Now, another plausible theory, which this one's pretty interesting, is scribing. And this was uh, published um, by a, a man named John McCauley, who's a retired architect and construction manager. His hypothesis is centered around the wisdom and ingenuity of the Inca, saying... Basically, the Inca probably used a system called scribing or basically template making to create the interlocking system of megalithic stones. He believes that the Inca moved the huge pieces of rock up to the site and carved and polished them right there on the hill. In order to create stones that fit so perfectly together, 
they would carefully measure the space they needed and create a wooden template. This template would then be applied to another stone that sort of fit the shape, and the stone would be shaped and polished to match the template. But this would mean that the Incas would have to be extremely accurate stonemasons. Now, they did possess tons of uh, mathematical... <laughs> See, the Incans were ancient Freemasons. <laughs> Knew it. <laughs> Any chance I get. <laughs> um, and they were very, you know, they were accurate stone carvers. They knew math and science. They were very advanced people. So um, it, it's possible, but it still seems a little, it's very tedious to do all of that. And especially with such massive stones. I mean, that's a very... Scribing is a simple thing to do on a smaller scale, but to do something that huge with that many stones is, is pretty insane. Um, so we don't know. We don't know how or why they built this place. Hmm. We may never know. The world <laughs> may never know. But it's pretty cool. If you look up the uh, pictures of it, it's, uh, it's spelled S-A-C-S-A-Y-H-U-A-M-A-N. It's definitely a place that's on my ancient ruin bucket list. I've got to go down there someday. <laughs> I'm just going to take a year off work and just travel the world. Yeah. Go to all these sites. That'd be cool. Or if I can get somebody to pay me to do I it. I hope your job's waiting for you when you get back. <laughs> I'll just do it remotely. <laughs> from the each episode, from an ancient site. <laughs> um, you know, I was going to segue from this when I talked about... <laughs> Sorry, I was just envisioning like... You leave for a year, and then it's like I have to take over Think Theory, and it's like um, <laughs> Wayne and Garth and like Wayne's World, and like Garth has to take over, and he's just like, uh, <laughs> like trying to run away from the camera. <laughs> be sports theory radio, yeah, sports theory, yeah. <laughs> but it has to be all sport conspiracy theories, either that or music conspiracy theories. But oh, yeah, either way, either way, <laughs> a little bit of both, yeah. Um, I was going to segue into this from when they, the Roman coins that were found at the Colosseum, along with the the food and snacks that they would eat. But they look under the bleachers for all the coins that fell. Yeah, through. that's what happened. <laughs> um, I know. I was kind of hoping for something. I was really hoping for some kind of like ancient pizza or something. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean figs and why? Like at least they sound like they're eating healthy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, olives and figs. You know. Yeah. And then I just like it. It just makes me think like, were there vendors? Like, did you go to the Coliseum? And you know, you go to like, you go to the stadium. And there's vendors in there. And you go, hey, let's go to the, let's go hit the fig guy, hey, Olive Man. Yeah, hey, it was a guy going yeah. up and down. The olives, olives, olives here, olives here. <laughs> Got your walnuts. Get your walnuts. You got the bag of peanuts, bag of walnuts. See? I love you. Love we all love olives. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like. Uh, um, Goblets of wine just flowing. I like it. But no, so I didn't segue into this, but I'm going to do the story now. And it's another uh, interesting discovery that kind of cross-pollinates cultures and pushes back timelines of things. An amateur, and I got this from CNN, an amateur historian discovers a 600-year-old English coin found in Newfoundland. Um, so the discovery of a rare gold coin on the south coast of Newfoundland, Canada, may challenge traditional historical narratives about the timing of European contact in the region, as it predates explorer John Cabot's arrival in the island by at least 70 years. On a press release last week, the govern government of Newfoundland and Labrador said that the English coin was found during the summer of 2022 by Edward Hines, a local amateur historian who reported to officials as required under the Province Historic Resources Act. The 600-year-old coin predates the first documented European contact with North America since the Vikings in a region with a 9,000-year-old history of human settlement and rich indigenous traditions. After consultation with Paul Berry, a former curator of the Bank of Canada's Currency Museum, the coin was identified as a Henry VI quarter noble minted in London between 1422 and 1427, uh, prior to the discovery, a coin minted in the 1490s was found in 2021. As Barry says that the coin was likely out of circulation when it was lost, there is much speculation about exactly how the gold quarter noble coin made its way to Newfoundland and Labrador. The precise location of the discovery is being kept secret to discourage treasure hunters. 
uh, the discovery of the coin underscores the intriguing archaeological record in the Finland Labrador, Canada's easternmost province. Stories of Viking arrival are contained in Icelandic sagas, sighting visits by Leif Erikson over a thousand years ago, and archaeological evidence of a Norse settlement as well. We talked about that on the show before as well. So it was pretty cool. Found an old, old medieval coin in Canada. Hmm. Uh, what else do I got? Well, here's another kind of uh, amulet thing. <laughs> Although I don't know if this is technically an amulet, but uh, it's another kind of cross-cultural thing. A late bronze, I got this from Haritz, a late bronze age scarab found on a school trip in central Israel. Imagine finding that when you're in eighth grade. I think I saw this article, right? Like the yeah, yeah the thing was pretty pretty huge. Like yeah, uh, yeah. A three thousand year old scarab was found last week on a tour of historical Azor for eighth graders. The ancient artifact was lying on its face, but Gilad Stern of the Israel Antiquities Authority Educational Center, who was guiding the kids, said an inner voice told him to turn it over. He did so, and the rest is rediscovered history. I was astonished. It was astonished, a, astonished, astonished. <laughs> it was a scarab with a clearly incised scene, the dream of every amateur archaeologist. The kids were really excited, he says. The bottom flat part of the scarab shows a seated figure before whom a person is standing. The standing person has one arm raised and an elongated head. The, oh, the elongated heads, you know, the alien heads, the, the uh, crystal skulls and all that stuff. <laughs> Get that, Dan Aykroyd yeah, on the phone. That's to be confused with, yeah. <laughs> Uh, which the archaeologists suspect may represent the pharaonic crown. The image could theoretically symbolize the pharaoh conferring authority on a local Canaanite subject during the period of Egyptian rule over this part of the world, the Israel Antiquities Authority says. The scene basically reflects the geopolitical reality that prevailed in the land of Canaan during the late Bronze Age from 1500 to 1000 B.C., when the local Canaanite rulers lived and sometimes rebelled under Egyptian political and cultural uh, rule, says Dr. Amir Golani, an IAA specialist at the Bronze Age era. Therefore, it is very possible that the seal is indeed from the late Bronze Age when the local Canaanites were ruled by the Egyptian Empire. Uh, I guess signs of the ancient time of Egyptian rule can be found throughout Last Israel. Long, yeah. This is it. This is it. We did it. <laughs> uh, the scarab was shaped like a dung beetle, an insect revered during at least some stages of ancient Egyptian culture. The ancient Egyptians hailed the beetle's efficient utilization of balls as dung as baby beetle incubators, seeing it as an embodiment of creation and regeneration reminiscent of the act of the creator God. So says the Israel Antiquities Authority. So there you go. That's it for today, and awesome archaeology and mysteries of the past. past, past, past. <laughs> Thanks, everybody, for listening, and we'll be back again next Saturday and every Saturday, 6 to 7 p.m., right here on WCPT H20 Think Theory Radio. Saturday.